Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot Theological Seminary, Biola University. We're here today with uh, our friend, Dr. Richard Weikert, who is a professor of history at Cal State Stanislaus and an expert in the period particularly leading up to World War II with the rise of Nazism in Germany. Richard, you've written a lot about the worldview, the ethics, the religion of Nazism. Several books on this, uh, Hitler's Ethic, From Darwin to Hitler, and a new book that's just recently come out called Hitler's Religion. Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about that as the time goes along. Um, he also has a, a book that's about two years old that I would highly recommend to you called The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life, where he, he tackles a lot of these current bioethical issues, but does so from the perspective of a historian, which you don't see very often in the discussion of these issues. So, Richard, let me start with this. I've heard some professors at uh, various universities who are antagonistic to Christianity hold the view that if it were not for Christianity— the Holocaust would never have happened. Why, in your view, do some professors hold this view, and how would you respond to such a view? Well, many of them that hold that view, of course, are coming from a secular viewpoint, which looks at Christianity in a very negative light. And we have to be honest and admit that many people who have called themselves Christians throughout history have done some pretty horrible and atrocious things. And, of course, Secularists traditionally would trot out things like the Inquisition and uh, the Crusades and things like that. Uh, and so uh, we need to understand that Christianity has been abused and misused in all sorts of ways. And uh, I would argue that people committing the Holocaust, of course, were, uh, if they were identified as Christians, which some were and some weren't, uh, they would have been a corrupted form of Christianity. But I would also argue that the Holocaust is more the product of a secular mentality. And so I would, I would argue that the rise of secularism was what made the Holocaust possible. And the reason for that is because there's no Christian leader uh, who's ever called for the mass killing of Jews. Now, there have been horrible things done to Jews. There were pogroms against Jews during the time of the Crusades, and there were other kinds of things like that that took place. Uh, in fact, uh, many of the popes actually even uh, tried to moderate that and, and gave, made positive statements about Jews and treating, and treating Jews well. Uh, but even Luther, who was pretty renowned for his anti-Semitism, and a lot of secularists look at him, and he did say some pretty horrible things about driving the Jews out of Germany and such. But his, his, uh, what he wanted to have happen to the Jews was he wanted them to convert to Christianity or to leave. And there was no religious uh, freedom in Europe at that time, uh, and that is also a problem, uh, from my view, of the way that Christianity was being practiced. But nonetheless, they weren't calling for the mass killing of Jews. It was only with secularized thinking about the Jews, which began to come in in the 19th century, that this became sort of the only option available once Hitler comes on the scene, because Hitler viewed the Jews not as a religion, but as a race. And he didn't want the Jews to convert to Christianity. Hitler made very clear that he, he thought one of the worst things that could happen would be if they converted to Christianity, because then they would bring in their what he saw as their bad biological traits into the German gene pool. So uh, the idea of killing the Jews was necessary from Hitler's perspective to get rid of 
the the bad heredity that he thought was in the uh, among the Jews. So it was really secularism which made the Holocaust possible. In your book, From Darwin to Hitler, you make a connection between naturalistic evolution and the rise of eugenics and racism, which are at the heart of Hitler's ethic. Can you make some of those connections for us, draw the pieces together of what you argue for in the book? Yeah, actually, when I got into this uh, research topic, I actually was doing an, an investigation of the history of evolutionary ethics in the late 19th century. And what I discovered was that uh, some of the people who were pushing for evolutionary ethics, that is the, well, actually, there's two kinds of ideas in evolutionary ethics. One is that ethics have evolved uh, and so sort of a naturalistic explanation for the origin of ethics. The other thing, though, is that some people were arguing that uh, ethics is defined by what promotes evolution. And the eugenics movement, which was a movement to try to uh, engineer human heredity or improve human heredity, was actually a way to try to, imp uh, to drive the evolutionary uh, progress forward. Uh, and so that's how many people even saw it. And so there's this poster from the third uh, eugenics, uh, international eugenics conference where uh, they uh, say that, uh, that uh, eugenics is uh, uh, evolution, essentially, that it's just the, the attempting to try to promote evolution. Uh, and racism, likewise, the racism was being explained, as scientific racism in the late 19th century was being explained as some races were more highly evolved and others were less evolved. And so uh, scientific racism in the late 19th and early 20th century was just imbued with evolutionary uh, kinds of thinking. And the whole notion of, of racial inequality was built into this idea of human variation, which had to be there in order for human evolution uh, to occur. So. Hitler was going to draw upon these ideas that were already widespread, not, not just, we're not talking here about among cranks or something on the streets, we're talking about here about the scientific faculties, the medical faculties at the German universities were teaching scientific racism. If you looked at anthropology, they were teaching scientific racism. Uh, eugenics was very prominent in the medical faculties uh, in German universities. So Hitler was drawing upon a fund of ideas that were pretty readily available at the highest echelons of German scholarship. So you would say that, that the eugenics movement that resulted in Germany was a what a, a, na a natural outgrowth of of the the worldview that was being promulgated at the time. Well, it was a, a it was built upon Darwinian foundations. Now, Darwin himself thought that you should rely more on natural selection rather than artificial selection. Eugenics movement uh, was promoting artificial selection, but still it was built upon the idea that some people are inferior when it applied to humans, that some people are inferior biologically, and that therefore you have to determine what, are, if you're just going to let them die naturally according to you know, natural selection, or are you going to try to sort of help evolution along by uh, uh, introducing some kinds of measures to uh, uh, get the so-called right people reproducing and keep the wrong people from reproducing. Uh, and that's what eugenics typically tried to do. And so compulsory sterilization became one of the favorite uh, methods by the early 20th century of trying to control reproduction uh, to drive the eugenics movement forward. But it was built upon the Darwinian idea that there's this variation in humans, this biological variation that, that is there and that humans are essentially unequal. The book from, from Darwin to Hitler, you'd also talk about the, the phenomenon of social Darwinism. Uh, as an application of that. What, what do you mean by that term, social Darwinism, and how did that impact the eugenics movement as it, as it came to be in Germany? Well, actually, the way I define social Darwinism is a competitive ethos that sees certain 
individuals as winning out in the struggle for existence. And this can be on the level of individuals within a society, if we're talking about like humans, it could be individuals in a society, or it can be societies competing against each other, so nations or races and such. Actually, I see eugenics as being artificial selection, so I see it as being sort of a separate kind of thing. It, it, it sort of buys into some of the social Darwinist uh, mentality, uh, but it, it promotes artificial selection instead of natural selection. So the, the social Darwinists would be pushing things like capitalist competition, uh, so economic competition for individuals within a society, or militarism and expansionism so that different nations or races would uh, outcompete their competitors. Your most recent book on Hitler's religion, there you, you're attempting to understand the, the different religious influences on Hitler and Nazism. I, I've heard it often said that Hitler was a Christian and was operating out of something resembling a Christian worldview. Uh, it, to what degree is that the case? How would you assess the, reli the religious underpinnings of Nazism? Well, one of the reasons it's said that Hitler was a Christian was because, well, he said so. And if Hitler said it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? I mean, <laughs> Hitler said he was a Christian, he must have been a Christian. So, so uh, the case is, though, that he was a very savvy politician. And interestingly, in uh, his book Mein Kampf, he actually uh, says that we need to be very, we meaning his fellow, he and his fellow Nazis, need to be very careful not to alienate people over religion because he saw what had happened to a prominent politician in Austria who he actually thought very highly of. He said that this guy had a lot of the, the right ideas. His name was Georg von Schoenerer. And he said von Schoenerer had a lot of the right ideas, but he had some bad political tactics. And one of the bad political tactics was that he led a campaign against the Catholic Church. And that sort of shot down his whole political career because Austria was predominantly Catholic. So Hitler said, we need to make sure we don't alienate people. And when Hitler was in Landsberg prison after his beer hall putsch, he actually told Rudolf Hess, who was in prison with him there, he told Hess that he had to uh, be a religious hypocrite and not uh, alienate people uh, religiously. So Hitler told his closest confidants clearly that he wasn't uh, a Christian, that he was, that he was duping people essentially uh, with his uh, uh, claims that he was a Christian. Uh, so, you know, Hitler did make these claims in April 1922, one of the most famous ones where he said that Jesus was his Lord and Savior and such. But if you look at what he was talking about privately, and sometimes even publicly, and I do bring out a lot of examples of this in my book, Hitler's Religion, Hitler was bashing Christianity uh, pretty consistently. He called it the, one of the most insane things that a brain has ever brought forth at one point in the early 1940s in his monologues, uh, for example. Uh, and so Hitler was... Uh, really antagonistic to Christianity, tried to destroy Christianity, although, again, he tried to do it sort of in a slow, step-by-step -step manner. He tried to sort of undercut the influence of Christianity wherever he could once he was in power. He, didn't, he knew that it wouldn't be possible just to out and out just battle the churches, you know, forthrightly, but he tried to undermine them any way he could. So he, tried, he, so he, he eliminated uh, Catholic and Protestant youth organizations and made everyone join the Hitler Youth, for example. So he's trying to win the young people and keep them away from church. They would have Hitler Youth meetings during Sunday mornings, for example. When Hitler held his Nuremberg rallies uh, every September, uh, they would meet on Sunday mornings uh, and people would not go to church. Uh, so there's... Uh, and if you look in my book, Hitler's Religion, I give uh, lots and lots and lots of evidence uh, showing where Hitler, especially in private, uh, was uh, rejected Christianity. And all of Hitler's associates, both in Goebbels' diaries, Rosenberg's diaries, his secretary's memoirs, and lots of other memoirs of his closest associates, make very clear that privately Hitler uh, condemned Christianity. 
So he rejected Christianity. Do we know if his worldview was more pagan, secular? What was his worldview in terms of religion that, that we know about? What I argue in Hitler's religion was that he was a pantheist, that is, that he believed that nature was the same as God. Now, this is, this is a secularized kind of religion in some kind of ways, and in fact, there's actually two different kinds of pantheism, one, one of which I think Hitler's was closest to, which is called scientific pantheism, which sees the universe as being basically mechanistic uh, and just calls it God, essentially. But Hitler did have some kind of notion of, of transcendence in some way. I mean, he does talk about providence a lot, and he sees providences intervening to you know, help him in his career and uh, save him from assassination attempts and other things like that. So he does have a sort of a, some kind of vague idea of some kind of uh, divine intervention and providence and such. But he doesn't have a notion of a, of a well-developed uh, uh, personal God, and he doesn't believe in any kind of personal afterlife. He actually does at one point talk about afterlife, uh, and his vision of the afterlife is just sort of you're reabsorbed into the cosmos. Wow. Very interesting. You don't hear that talked about very often at all. Yeah. In your book, The Death of Humanity, you've applied much of historical background to today's ethical issues. What do you see in common with how our culture thinks about issues of, of life and death today and how our European predecessors thought about them? You know, it's really tricky when you try to start making some connections, say, with Nazism and things going on today, it, because of course it gets overused. There's also everyone's, you know, everyone's, uh, you know, calling their whoever happens to be their villain, Hitler or the Nazis or things like that. So I try to be careful about that. But on the other hand, when we still do need to see what parallels are there, uh, and one of the things that concerns me most when I look back at the uh, the European thinkers before the Nazi period uh, and the kinds of things that they were promoting. Uh, such as the social Darwinism, the evolutionary ethics, the inequality of humans, and other kinds of things. What concerns me is that I see uh, in common a undermining of the sanctity of human life uh, that was going on in a lot of secular thought. Uh, I mean, they're undermining the notion that, that Thomas Jefferson wrote into the Declaration of Independence when he said that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there's the, a lot of secular thinkers, both then and today, are undermining the idea of human equality. And they're arguing that, no, humans are unequal. Some, some human beings are persons, and some human beings are not persons and don't have the protection of the law. And they're arguing that, some, there, that there are, is no such thing as inalienable rights, that rights are created by society and by humans, and so there's no such thing as inalienable rights. So I'm very concerned about the way that uh, the thinkers before the Nazi period undermined the value of human life, which gave rise to not just the Holocaust, but the Nazi killing of people with disabilities, uh, you know, the whole notion of uh, scientific racism and such, and today the devaluing of human life, which isn't being pushed so much in sort of scientific racism, acceptance and extreme like the alt-right. Interestingly, the alt-right uh, very often embraces Darwinian thinking about human inequality and such, too. So there are some elements in our society, like in the alt-right, who do go that way. But on the more mainstream of our uh, society, certainly in, uh, in academe, uh, we see, though, an undermining of the, the value of human life on the notion of, well, some humans are persons and some are not. Yeah, I appreciate the caution with which you approach the, the use of the Nazi analogy 
for some of the bioethical trends today. I think, for, take for example, the euthanasia movement in Germany. It's often cited that there's a parallel today how the, it's just a slide down a slippery slope today as, as it was in Nazi Germany. But my observation is that uh, the euthanasia movement in, in Germany never had a beneficent goal to it in the first place. It was not patient-centered. It was not uh, individual-centered. It, it was for eugenic purposes. So I've often suggested that the, the Nazi program sort of started at the bottom of the slippery slope and descended further. And it's not really a good example of how the euthanasia movement today moves from something voluntary to something non-voluntary. But the, the things that the, the two the two ways of looking at a, a human being uh, have in common, I think, the, the idea that you can be a human being but not a person with rights and protectability, I think, is an element that they had in common. Uh, and the idea that there is a, you know, that there's such a thing as a life not worth living, uh, I found very alarming that the, the, the term used in Germany of, of useless eaters – has come back into vogue today, particularly in the discussion of euthanasia in Europe. The, the commonalities are more in terms of you know, how we think about the sanctity of life, right. particularly at the, at the margins um, that, that I see being and, resurrected today. Yeah, and interestingly, in the way you frame that, one time I was asked this after giving a talk about From Darwin to Hitler, I was asked about the issue. Well, you know, back in those days it was compulsory, it was government-driven and such like that. Today it's you know, individually driven, you know, by people making their own choices. And, you know, I told the person who asked that question, I said, you know, I'm not sure that's actually better. I, you know, today we have now millions of individuals making these choices for abortion, for euthanasia, for assisted suicide. Now we've got millions of people making these choices, uh, and people are still dying. So I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse, uh, rather than a government-driven program where, you know, smaller numbers of people are making the decisions to do it to everyone else. Generally assume that if people are you know, if people are making those autonomous choices themselves, that's a, that's just automatically a better thing. Um, yeah. But I think that, that that I think that's a valid point. Right? That may that may not be the case. In your book, you also point out this is what I so appreciate about your book on the, the death of humanity is how you trace all the historical steps to how we got here in each in each of these issues, uh, such as euthanasia and eugenics and transhumanism, things like that. Uh, how is how help our listeners understand how has the eugenics movement resurfaced today? Well, today again, it's done in a more individualistic kind of way today. But we have you know amniocentesis, and and uh, uh, so we've got all sorts of ways that we now can uh, uh, detect different kinds of uh, birth defects and such in the womb now. So a lot of it's happening through abortion uh, these days, rather than having to happen after the birth, as, say, the Nazis and others were uh, uh, practicing it uh, in their day, because they didn't have as quite as sophisticated technologies as we have. And so now we have a situation where, uh, you know, Iceland has declared itself completely free of Down syndrome, and uh, the U.S. and France and other countries have about 80 to 90 percent, I think is the figures right now, of people with Down syndrome being aborted. So a lot of the uh, eugenics going on today is going on through abortion. Yeah, I think it's it's fair to say that I think our commitment to diversity does have some limits to it. Um, yeah, clearly. Richard, let me ask you this. You've studied this issue historically, but also in the present. Where do you see the next maybe two or five or ten years going in terms of the ethical issues that our culture will be discussing and debating, in particular around the topic of life? Well, 
I'm a historian, not a prophet, so <laughs> I am very <laughs> hesitant to, to predict where we're going to be going uh, on these things. I mean, in thinking about where we've gone uh, over the past, say, 10 to 20 years, I'm very hopeful. We, In fact, the whole reason I wrote my book, The Death of Humanity, is I'm hoping we can put the brakes on and won't keep going the same direction, because I don't think we have to. I mean, uh, obviously, mm. we've, you know, different things have taken place historically. If we think about the long-term trends where uh, some uh, abuses of uh, human rights, slavery comes to mind, for example, I mean, it, it can be stopped. I mean, just because slavery has existed for, you know, centuries doesn't mean that it can't be uh, uh, put an end to. And so I think the same thing is true with, with us, with abortion and infanticide and euthanasia and assisted suicide, and these kinds of things, even though it looks, seems like, you know, we're sort of being run over by a train here in terms of uh, the, you know, it seems like the, you know, the momentum is all toward moving toward more uh, of those things. Uh, I'm not, I don't think it, it I don't think we should give up and assume that it just has to go that way. I mean, California law uh, apparently just got uh, struck down as unconstitutional uh, yesterday uh, by a California judge because it was passed during a special session. Uh, whether it'll stay that way, uh, we don't know. Uh, but even if it even if it doesn't get struck down as unconstitutional, we could legislate it away. We could change the legislation once again. So, I. I don't want to predict where we're going to be going that way. I mean, I see the direction we're going right now, which is not good, uh, but I'm hopeful we can arrest it. Tell me some things that that our listeners can do. What would your encouragement be for people just to make a difference in their family, in their community, in their church, to really overturn some of these trends that you've been talking about? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, I think uh, the the really the way that I think the this the trends could be reversed in terms of a longer standing thing is I think we're going to need to have a uh, religious revival ultimately. And I think we're right for it. I mean, uh, we look at the times of religious revival in the past uh, and they've been dark times. You know, we, we, you know, you look in what has happened previous to the different religious revivals. It's been dark times and, and uh, secularism seems to be triumphing in those particular uh, places and times. And so, I mean, I think cultivating a, a, uh, spiritual life and close relationship with Jesus. I think mean, that's going to be the primary thing, and passing that on to our uh, the next generation best way we can. So I'd say that's really the the primary thing. But I think beyond that, I think we need to uh, you know get up to speed on these issues and sort of understand where uh, the secular uh, thinkers are coming from and how they are undermining and eroding the sanctity of human life. It's not enough just to uh, participate in uh, pro-life demonstrations and rallies, and which are all good, and I, I do participate in them myself. You know, I'm not saying don't do that. That's important too. Uh, but we need to realize that the reason we're losing this battle is because of the underlying worldview issues that uh, need to be uh, cultivated, understood, passed on to the next generation, so that we can understand uh, how the value of human life is being undermined by secular thinkers in all sorts of ways, and and uh, stand up against that. Richard, I'm curious how your work has been received by people on the other side. Is it ignored? Are you personally attacked? Are they up for a good discussion and debate? What's the response been? Well, uh, a lot of, the death of humanity hasn't received, I haven't really seen much in the way of a lot of response from secular thinkers uh, other than a few that I've uh, had a little email contact with or stuff uh, 
a couple of them attacked attacked me. Others just sort of uh, brush it aside and such. Uh, the book Hitler's Religion, actually, interestingly, has got pretty good reviews all across the board. Even a humanist website gave it a, a very positive review. Uh, so I've been pretty uh, heartened by that uh, review. But uh, The Death of Humanity, I think, is uh, actually my most important book, I think, that's out so far. Uh, and uh, I'm, I am hoping that secular people will read it, although I don't know how much of that's actually happening right now. Most of the uh, publicity it's got has been sort of in Christian circles, uh, so I don't know how many secularists have actually read it. I'm hoping they will, though, because one of the things I try to do in The Death of Humanity is I try to show the problems, inconsistencies, contradictions within secular thought to get secular people thinking you know, about how can these things be true? How can, how can the, their worldview be true in light of the things that they themselves know about human life and its value? Richard, well, one last question. What, if anything, uh, makes you hopeful about culture today recovering its respect for the sacredness of life? Is there anything out there that you're hopeful about? Well, there's one thing I think that I just mentioned, and that's that, that I think that the consciences of a lot of even secular thinkers uh, still uh, makes them understand on one level or another that human life does have value. And again, I try to show this in my book. And let me just give one example of this real quickly. Bertrand Russell, one of the most famous uh, early 20th century British philosophers, uh, claimed in his philosophical works that life is meaningless, that there's uh, no purpose to life, that uh, morality is simply an emotional feeling that you have about things, that there's no objective reality to, to morality or anything like that. But then you look at his life, and you see that he was intensely moralistic. In fact, his daughter, Catherine Tate, wrote a book called My Life with Bertrand Russell, where she says that he was an absolutist morally, even though it flew in the face of his whole philosophy. That Bertrand Russell actually said that he had this passion for God, even though he didn't believe in him. And there's this really profound quote that from a letter that he wrote to a woman that he was in love with, uh, where he says it's like loving a ghost, he says that it gives his, his whole life meaning, even though he doesn't believe that God exists at all. So Bertrand Russell was a fascinating figure, and, and I think a lot of secularists are wrestling within themselves over these issues. Bertrand Russell certainly was, and we wouldn't know that if he hadn't written this letter to, uh, and, and written to some other people and, and such about it. But I think a lot of uh, people, even with secular mentalities, are wrestling with these ideas because they, they know at some level that human life has value even if their whole philosophy cries out against it, and even if they promote uh, death-affirming uh, corollaries to their philosophies, such as abortion and infanticide and euthanasia, at some level they know human life has some value. I, I think we're going to have to have another conversation just about Bertrand Russell on this, because I think <laughs> those, that is, that, I find that incredibly interesting uh, and, yeah, and very, very, yeah. very puzzling as well. Well, Richard, thank you so much for coming on with us and uh, giving us a glimpse historically at uh, the roots of some of our uh, major ethical issues that we're facing as a culture today. I want to recommend to our listeners, particularly uh, your book, The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life. Uh, it's just it's just one of the best, most informative books out there on the bioethical issues that we are facing in our culture and the historical roots you bring to bear on those issues, I find a really valuable contribution. So we're very grateful for your good work as a, as a historian, uh, but also for your collegiality as a brother in Christ uh, as you're 
giving us, I think, a historical blend of things with a lot of these ethical issues that we just don't see a lot of. So thank you for coming on with us. Yeah, also, thank you. On. Thank you for your good work. Um, it's just it's been rich to talk to you. And uh, we would really like to do another one of these with you. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Richard Weikert, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.